Hello and welcome to The Shindig with Rubicon Heritage and Red River Archaeology. My name is Tanaya Jurgensen, and today I'll be talking to Emer Dennehy from TII and Teresa Bolger, a former colleague at Rubicon, about the excavations conducted in Dublin city centre during the construction of the Lewis. So today we have Inamur Dennehy from TII and Teresa Bolger, late of Rubicon here, joining us. Ladies, can you tell me a bit more about yourself? Hi, this is Teresa here. And as Tanaya said, I was formerly employed by Rubicon Heritage for over 10 years. And during that time, I worked as a senior archaeologist for two successive contracts uh, for Lewis Cross City. And I've since run away to join the public service. Hi, I'm Emer. I'm working with Transport Infrastructure Ireland, or TII, as a project archaeologist on the light rail systems. And prior to that, I used to be private, work in private industry, and once upon a time, even worked with Teresa. So, yeah, <laughs> so that's, that's my background. So today we're going to be talking about the Lewis, and for our listeners outside of Ireland, the Lewis is a tram or, or light rail system in Dublin that consists of two main lines, the red line and the green line. These were both opened in 2004, and they have since been been split and extended. And in December 2017, after 4.5 years of construction, the Lewis Cross City, uh, which was a northern extension of the Lewis Green Line, opened, facilitating the connection with the Red Line at Abbey Street and onwards to Broombridge. So what was the role of archaeology in building the Lewis? Ooh, well, I'll answer that question. So I suppose um, what we do we, in order to build Lewis is we have to get what we call a railway order application, which is a permit to, to build um, a, a rail infrastructure system. In order to do that, as many other planning applications that around the country, um, you do have to prepare what we call an environmental impact assessment report. So the role of the archaeologists in, um, in, in the light rail division of TII is to work with the design team on designing a light rail infrastructure scheme that is um, cognizant of the heritage of the city, while also facilitating the development of the, the much needed infrastructure. So we work with the design team from a very early stage, trying to minimize the impacts on archaeology and on built heritage. Then we work and um, we have consultants prepare, which was actually a, um, Rubicon, an earlier version of Rubicon, prepare the environmental impact assessment reports, lodge the railway order application. And then when we move into construction stage, our role is to ensure that the mitigation measures as set out in the railway order application and the environmental impact assessment report are implemented on site and to safeguard the heritage and where we can protect the archaeology in situ, make sure that it is dug to a very high standard, which it was thanks to Rubicon, and then that it's reported upon and that eventually a book will come out of all the results so that the public will have full access to all of the results of the system. Why is it necessary to conduct monitoring or excavation during the building process? You said that there is built heritage, so... I suppose, so the city, so in terms of heritage, we have the built heritage, it's all the upstanding, like the Georgian buildings, the sculptures, around the city um, so so that's all the built heritage side but then beneath the pavements you have elements of the built heritage you have the cellars that were associated with it but then underneath all that you have historic road surfaces and all the medieval occupation layers of the city as well because we're in a city centre and we are trying to develop a scheme while keeping the roads open to traffic and keeping people able to get to work and 
and and enjoy their lives we we can't actually open up the roads and do advanced archaeological works like we would have done if you were building a road in the greenfield environment so so and there's partly because of keeping traffic open but there's so many utilities under the roads it's it's too dangerous to have archaeologists in there on their own um you know try, trying to do that while you know because the city's also highly dependent on its infrastructure on its communication cables and um, telephone cables there's you know trading companies going on we have to keep the whole city running so so we can't do any advanced works so what we do is we monitor the construction works that that means that there's archaeologists on site at the same time as a construction company watching every piece of soil getting moved about to identify if there's archaeology in place and then when they do come across archaeology they are authorized to stop the works um, for a sufficient amount of time to allow them to establish if it's archaeology if it's archaeology in situ and then to record it and preserve what we do we call it preservation by record whereby they um, devise very detailed accounts photographs written records of what they have found that then gives a permanent paper record of what was under the surface and if we didn't have archaeologists monitoring that works all that stuff would just be um, for want of a better word just bulldozed out of it and completely destroyed when when it when it gives us so many valuable insights into the city brilliant thank you so Teresa then this might be a question for you how old is the city of Dublin and even beyond the city how long has there been settlement in the area okay that's a kind of that, that actually people think it's a straightforward question how old is Dublin <laughs> What people think of, you know, when you talk to people about Dublin, you go, everybody knows Dublin was founded by the Vikings in the ninth century. It's kind of like that's 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 the story. That's the story we tell ourselves. But the reality is that like before the Vikings arrived, before the Norse showed up in their boats in in the Liffey estuary, there was settlement of Dublin. We know we have early medieval ecclesiastical sites um, close in, in the area we now think of as Dublin city centre, in particular, one of the particular sites I'm thinking of is around kind of Andrew Street area. There's a major ecclesiastical settlement there. The forging point in the River Liffey, the Auclea, is one of the major kind of crossing points there and connection routes between uh, what was the kingdoms of Leinster in the early medieval period, which would be now, what we now think of the South Leinster, kind of Dublin, South Dublin, kind of Kildare, Wicklow, Wexford, down to water, but all of that area is the Kingdom of Leinster in the early medieval period. And that's the main connection route then up into the Midlands, to Tara, to the, the Southern Yale Kingdoms um, across Meath and Westmeath. So that you've that connection point there. But in terms of archaeology, we can go right back to the Mesolithic in the city centre. Um, the result of all the excavations and archaeological excavation investigations we've done in advance of development in Dublin inner city over the last 20 to 30 years, we found Mesolithic fish weirs out on the Liffey estuary, and I think also Neolithic material out there down in the Docklands, Spencer Dock, that part of the city centre. Coming back into the main city centre, you have just off Church Street, uh, what's known as a Philoctophia or a Burnt Mound, which is a typical site of the Bronze Age. And my own excavations um, back about 15 years ago on Ormond Quay, directly opposite uh, the civic offices, which you would think would be the centre of the medieval period, actually found an Iron Age waterfront. So we can go all the way back into prehistory in the city centre of Dublin, not just in the kind of general hinterland of the city, but right in the city centre, we can go all the way back to prehistory. It's amazing, because for me, I, I specialise in the Viking period, and so... For me, it always stops at the Viking Age, but it's so interesting yeah. to hear that it goes so, so much farther back. So then when we're looking at the 
the Lewis Cross City, what did we expect to find archaeologically? Well, we, we expected quite quite to find quite a lot of stuff. Um, in order um, to, to devise our contracts and to do our environment impact assessment reports, we did a lot of desktop risk assessments where we looked at the excavations, such as those that Teresa has mentioned, and looked at the potential of what the environment could have. Now, we are outside of, or we were outside of the main medieval core, so we didn't expect to find any medieval occupation levels, bar, perhaps down by College Green, but we did expect to find a lot of the post-medieval or from the development of the city from like the late 1600s onwards so so we we expected to find um, probably agricultural levels beneath the existing soils lots of housing foundations from different periods of houses that were that lined the streets street surfaces and, and cellars um, one of the biggest things that we did know we would find would be the coal cellars that were associated with the former former georgian buildings and when those have been knocked with the cellars still to survive they're considered archaeological constraints on on our um, development so we knew we would find a lot of things like that but we still managed to find stuff that we hadn't even anticipated we we found quite some you know some really interesting stuff within the city a lot of stuff related to st stephen's green and the establishment of that which is we, people might not know but st stephen's green is a national monument but it dates back to 1635 but in the contrast outside of the city we also found you know as we headed up to broadstone and Broombridge, an awful lot of industrial activity related to the um, construction of the canals and the midland great western railway which was absolutely just fantastic from an industrial heritage point of view and a great insight and a unique and rare opportunity to examine industrial heritage in such a, a broad spectrum. We did expect to find quite a lot, but we still got surprised. So then Rubicon was, was appointed to a 5.6 long corridor from the Green Line, starting at St. Stephen's Dreams West to Broombridge Station on the Maynooth Railway line. What necessarily was discovered along the route? Emer, you talked a bit about the coal cellars. Was there anything specifically that stood out? Well, I suppose it depends on what your interested discipline is. So for me, St. Stephen's Green was just magical, I suppose. And that's kind of a thing, you know, we've St. Stephen's Green has always been a mystery in some ways. There's always been these documented things about what was found. And there's so many maps dating from like um, 1610 onwards and showing the green from, you know, when it was, if that was established in 1635, it's it's shown on the Gom's map of 1673 and on all the iterations of maps since that date. But it's, it's always changed. But there's nobody, nobody's ever been able to investigate the green itself and, and to establish things that were documented, but that we were never, that we never had an insight into. Like we always knew it was Marshall and we knew it was commonage. There was always this reference to this canal or ditch that ran around the park. And there was evidence of it on the documentary sources and, and on some contemporary drawings, but never got to physically go in and see it. And so we did, when we were doing the um, extension of the Lewis line in what we call a stabling lane, which is where we would put temporary trams when we're, when we're changing shifts and things between the lines, um, we did get a, a unique opportunity to look into um, the perimeter ditch um, of the green established that there definitely was a ditch. It wasn't just a rumor or because sometimes in documentary sources they make reference to things that might not necessarily have been there. We got to see how it was made and how it was built. Um, we also knew at one point there had been a cartilage wall around the park and that was demolished and we got we found evidence of that. And there was also that we knew about the tree-lined avenues or the line walks that encircle the park. So so we got to to find the the tree pits where all those trees have been planted. There was a huge insight into that. And then it, it also showed, you know, the evolution and how, how much the evolution of the city was tied into drainage and the provision of water, because being marshland, they had to have this canal or 
the dirty ditch, as they called it, around the park to, to drain it and keep it as a nice environment for people to use it. But once the, once the city started getting infrastructure in the form of drainage and piped water, they were able to infill this canal and drain it and, and drain the park in different ways. So that was actually very interesting to see how, how the morphology of a park changed and adapted into the, by means of the evolution of the city. So that was one of my favourite ones. And I'll let Teresa talk about another one, but Broadstone Harbour would be my favourite after that. Yeah. I suppose my favourites are actually not so much the big finds, but it's the, it's the little mysteries that remain. I mean, there's, there's, there's big areas of stuff that we kind of semi-expected to find and we found things to do with, for example, the Wide Street Commission's reorganisation of the area between College Green and the Liffey in the start of the 18th century. And I'd found traces of that and other sites before in my kind of kind of pre previous life working on different projects in that area on Aston Quay and on Delir Street. And it was interesting to find that still under the streetscape as well. But I suppose the ones that 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 kind of stick with me, oddly enough, rather than the big finds like, as I said, stuff in College Green and things like that, it's actually a couple of the little mysteries that still remain. And one of them is the mystery kind of slight roofed cellars of Parnell Street, um, which turned up at the corner of Parnell Street on O'Connell Street, just there at what's the AIB bank building there, and they're just under the pavement, and they seem to relate to a previous building on the site of the bank, but it doesn't tie into anything that we know on the maps. And these seem to be coal cellars, as you would find normally in front of Georgian buildings, but with this additional kind of slate roofed um kind of proper flashing on them as though they had been exposed to the elements and the where why and how of them is a mystery now with the, another example has subsequently been found on excavations on a dublin city council site on dominic street and there was just one example of a single cellar at the rear of a building which had the same kind of slate roof slate roof effect applied and there it's thought maybe it might be to do with waterproofing because there's evidence that the building it was attached to was owned by a tea merchant but as I said the ones on Parnell Street remain a mystery as to who what why how and where somebody was doing this and the other mystery back still on the north side on Dominic Street are the two mystery cellars in the middle of the road on Dominic Street. Um, Dominic Street Lower is a Georgian street, and there's so some of the ranges of Georgian buildings survive. And during advanced works before Rubicon became involved, they found the cellars for the Georgian buildings, which still exist. Identify the cellars out in front of it, and that's all. That all that all makes complete sense. Then during the actual track works, we found two more cellars out in the middle of the carriageway that don't relate to the Georgian terraces. And the Georgian terraces are supposed to be the first and where they still stand thus far only buildings on those sections of Dominic Street Lower. So where these two cellars came from or what they relate to, given that they just exist in splendid isolation in the middle of the carriageway, I don't know. We, we never quite figured out the, the, the where, why and what of them either. So the, it's the, those little mystery things that stay with you because you just can't, you, you, you're kind of going, Hopefully at some point somebody down the line will do will do something or will come across a source somewhere and it'll all start to make sense. But that is that's a mystery for future archaeologists still to solve. Could could they be pre-Georgian or was was coal a big thing at that point? 
Oh, they're definitely pre-Georgian because they're not okay. on Roque's map of 1760 um, in Roque or 1756 for the city in Roque is the Bible for the city. And that's the biggest issue with those sellers oh. in that, like, you know, we have the accounts of Lady Dominic after her husband died, advertising the plots for sale and for digging up the good sand from the sellers. And, and none of this, n- those sellers just should not have been there, like, um, you know, because there's no buildings shown on the earliest maps that we have for that area. And likewise, there's another one on Dominic Street on the corner tree said you remember there was that huge um, water pump absolutely massive big deep well red brick well with a lower um, stone layers and a conical top to it quite clearly must have been providing water to the city and like there are pumps you know um as i was saying earlier you know you didn't have piped water you were reliant on wells um you know private wells and public wells for your for your drinking water when you were living in the city but that's and they are all marked on maps but this one isn't marked on a maps and again it's location in the middle of the road again it confirms that it's it's it was never there you wouldn't none of the cartographers would have missed it so that's that's a big why is that there why is that's that well there and those two sellers there were nothing you know should have been all that should have been agricultural land you know so um maybe someday in years to come better people than us will find out but we can't it's it's those little mysteries that stay with you not 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 the big kind of headline discoveries of things because quite often it's it's the little mysteries that leave you still kind of scratching your skin kind of I want to know what that was (laughs) you know I want to know the why of that and I still don't know the why of those I mean there's a lot of other things that we found with Lewis that are incredibly interesting but they kind of they kind of either fit into an expected narrative or we have been able through kind of research to understand them and build a narrative to to fit them in but those you know those little things there no that's going yeah that that, that's still that there's still work to be done there future archaeologists working in the city are going to need to to kind of take on board those mysteries and see if they can they can solve them in further works somewhere down the line what what is interesting for the lewis is that lewis is always out on the road you mm-hmm. know whereas all the other archaeological investigations or the majority of other archaeological investigations are off the road on established property plots property plots many of which date back hundreds of years and like to get this out opportunity to go out into the middle of the road and then find something that you're totally not expecting you know it, it's going to be maybe another lewis line before um or, or some other substantial infrastructure before we get to to, to get further information on on those particular issues actually that's that is a question that i have the the road that you guys excavated have those roads kind of always been there has the layout of the city changed because you know you know in uh, 1666 67 there was the fire of london and they completely changed the structure of london was anything ever like that with dublin or has dublin always just always been the same (laughs) Yes, no. Yes, no. There's there's parts of Dublin. There's parts of Dublin where the streets will go very far back, and in some cases, you will have situations where roads maybe were widened in kind of, er, you know, shall we say, the early post-medieval period, and that wouldn't necessarily always be captured on on mapping and understanding. There's very few areas where we really have a very definite this was there was something very different here before it was completely leveled and replaced with something else uh, the main places we actually see that oddly is through the area where lewis cross city went and that would be the activities of the white streets commission in 
I suppose, the, the South City there between College Green and the Liffey, where they did completely level the medieval streetscape to create Westmoreland Street and Delir Street. So that was that was an area of Dublin where quite literally in the 1790s, everything was flattened. They, you know, you, you're, you're talking as that on, on, a, on, a, on a smaller scale version of what would have happened with the Great Fire of London or with the, the kind of European situation where they kind of opened up big grand avenues in the cities, the kind of great Napoleonic rebuilding of Paris, where you kind of had the big grand avenues. This was a mini Irish version of that. So you do see the White Streets Commission in their work. You see a kind of small scale versions that the big, the big one there between College Green and the Liffey. You have Luke Gardner kind of with a kind of matching kind of kind of body of work on the north side of Dublin where he widened what was originally Drogheda Street to create first the Gardner Mall and then the White Streets Commission continue that down to the Liffey to so you have what we now know as O'Connell Street but the original road that that corresponds to is actually the eastern carriageway so the the kind of the I suppose the Cleary side of the street whereas the Easton's GPO side of the street would originally have been kind of houses and buildings with kind of Henry Street and Abbey Street coming up, coming up along those streets and across what's now what's now mostly O'Connell Street. So that area, that there we do have very much a widening and changing. And on a smaller scale, the White Streets Commission did do various road widening projects. They did a bit at Nassau Street. So we've some evidence from Lewis as well for that for where they kind of widened the road on Nassau Street and particularly the junction of Nassau Street and Grafton Street. So one of the things we found there in Lewis is we have cellars there in the middle of what we think of as the carriageway there of Nassau Street and Grafton Street, but they're actually from 18th century, 18th century and slightly earlier buildings that were leveled when the White Streets Commission widened Nassau Street. So that that would be the closest we come to that kind of kind of major change. But really, for the, with the exception of that kind of College Green kind of O'Connell Street access, a lot of stuff the White Streets Commission do, were doing was more kind of fiddling around the edges of streets, as I said, widening things and making them a bit bigger in places, but not really that wholesale leveling and kind of rebuilding from scratch on a very different plan. We don't have that to the to the same degree in Dublin. We didn't have a big fire like they had in London. Yeah, we don't have kind of major destruction like that. To be honest with you, the main issue in Dublin is probably the stagnation at the end of the medieval period. That there's a there's a lot to say that there's not much happening in the city in the kind of 15th, 16th, early 17th century. And it's around the mid 17th century that you see development in Dublin really take off. It's a kind of, it turns from this kind of stagnant backwater to this boom town. And that's where you have the activities of the big developers in Dublin. And it's mainly these kind of building up these, what were, what we now think of as the city centre, but were actually originally suburban estates. Um, so you have people like Humphrey Jervis uh, on the in the North City and later the Gardner Estate. On the South City, you have the Earl of Anglesey, you have the Pembroke Estate, and they're kind of doing these big, what we would think of now as kind of urban development projects. <laughs> You know, you you, rec you recognize it now when you start doing these kind of big suburban planning exercises outside Dublin, where they kind of plan whole new suburbs and lay out streets. And you see that happening in the, the kind of 
towards the end of the 17th century, early 18th century in Dublin when it's a boom town and you have these big magnets going around laying out huge chunks of the city. And in the case of Humphrey Jervis, getting themselves involved in lots of planning irregularities as well. So... <laughs> Yeah. And I think as well, you know, it's really important to remember, like, if it wasn't for these um, lords and landed gentry, you know, developing it, like the city was very confined. It had only one crossing point. And until such time as they started coming out, laying down new streets and putting new bridges across the Liffey, you, the city itself couldn't expand. And the other thing, you know, is to remember that the River Liffey was a lot wider th than it is today. And the reclamation and the setting out of the city into the north and the south lots, that had a huge, huge impact, but not the Nice um, Googles and things that we have today. You know, there was foundries and shipyards and apologies. So yeah. foundries and shipyards going on in the background yeah. and stuff. So, so it's I suppose you you know things become you know it's passing of time and things go in of fashion and out of it fashion and the regeneration of areas. Um, you know, pe people coming in making areas attractive again. So, so that that's reflected a lot in in what we find in the city. So this is not the first time that parts of Dublin have been gentrified. Oh, no, no, no. The things have been gentrified and then ungentrified and then regentrified again. It's kind of, it, it's a confusing cycle. <laughs> at, at what, you have to remember, at one point, the north inner city was the fashionable place to be, even though we now think of the, the, the north side as kind of the slightly more run down part of the city. At one point, that was that was the place to be. And, you know, the south side yeah. was the kind of was the rundown medieval dump. And then when the nice estates were built, people flocked to it and it was the attractive side of town and it was the fashionable side of town. And, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't until Dawson built the mansion house and things that the, the South City kind of started to develop around like larger houses like that. But mm -hmm. really it was the North Side that was the place to be. Going back to, I think, was one of the bigger discoveries, or at least received some of the most attention. There were five burials that were uncovered at College Green. And I think that there was some excitement because College Green has been in the past associated with the Hiberno-North section of town. I think at one point there had been mounds associated where College Green is. So when the burials were uncovered, there was public hope that they were Viking. Not um, just public hope, not just public hope. <laughs> <laughs> Teresa, did you hope that they were Viking? I think we, I think we all, I think all of the archaeologists did. I, I don't think I would be alone in that. In that. I'd, say, I'd, say, I'd say all of the archaeologists working on the scheme, the archaeologists working for TII, not to speak for Emer, but <laughs> the, you know, the other archaeologists who, who would have had an interest in, in Dublin City Council, other, you know, we, 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 there would have been a general kind of best guess or expectation that if one, if one found burials in College Green, that there was a good chance that they were going to be Hibernian Norse, or at least, you know, kind of come, coming out of that to some degree. As I said, there have been antiquarian finds from the kind of 18th and early 19th century of burials in the area of Nassau Street, Suffolk Street. And there, there's finds of artifacts from that area that suggest they would have been grave goods from burial mounds. And I said, obviously, then you have the historic accounts that reference the Hogger Mounds which is where the name Hoggen Green comes from, which is the original name 
of College Green before the university was founded by Elizabeth I and we had a college to give it the name College Green. Before then it was Hoggen Green from the from these kind of burial mounds, the Hogger mounds, and there was also the Thingmot, which is the assembly mound for the for, for the North City of Dublin was also down there as well. So it was this important kind of ritual burial suburban part of the Viking city. Um, but yeah, so naturally we kind of assumed that we worked in the assumption that they they, they could be kind of Hibernian Norse burials. Can you tell us what they actually ended up being? Yeah, it's a, it's one of the things that, and then we got the radiocarbon dates. <laughs> Which just goes to show that it it does, you should never make assumptions about things. Assumptions are what lead you, sometimes lead you down rabbit holes, <laughs> and the wrong rabbit holes in this case. Um, you know, it's, it's, it would be standard practice, even, even with kind of good documentary evidence like this, where we have human remains, it's always standard practice to get them radiocarbon dated. Um, so, we we did this in this case we 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 decided to radiocarbon date all of them. We wouldn't we wouldn't always do this. Sometimes for for larger assemblages we'd only radiocarbon date a sample, but because we only had five, we felt it was just uh, and given where they were, it was justifiable to to radiocarbon date as many as possible. So one four of them gave us radiocarbon dates that kind of fit into the fifteenth to seventeenth century, and one of them came out as mid fifteenth century. So this put them very firmly into the context of Tudor Dublin, which is the immediate kind of post-medieval period. Um, it's the kind of time when the college had just been established, or in the case of the mid 15th century burial, that would probably have just predated the establishment of the college and the dissolution of the monastery. Excuse me. So it's, it is a really interesting time in the history of Dublin and at this part of and what was happening in this part of Dublin. But it was not your kind of first guess for when burials would date from. <laughs> See, I suppose I had a bit more of a cautious approach. Um, I had to put on the brave face of TII. Um, but I have to say, historically, I've been burned quite badly in the past on my own private, you know, when I worked before on deciding something was of a certain age, then getting the radiocarbon dates back and being proved very, very badly wrong. And this would have been time number three. So I said, no, I'm not doing that this time. But I suppose I come from, you know, I'm not a Dublin-based archaeologist. Um, I, 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 work in, I worked in Kerry for many years. That's where I'm from originally. But I also um, specialize in deviant burials. That's where I where my background would be. And so I was, I suppose, a bit more cautious that we were in front of um, Trinity College, which had previously been a monastic um, and Augustinian friary. You know, I would be quite used to finding burials on the edge of monastic enclosures, on the edge of monastic sites. I would have definitely said that with the depth of them, that being they were nearly two meters down or 1.5 meters down, that they, they were more in the medieval age of it and definitely could not have ruled out that they were Norse but um or Viking but yeah I, I suppose I was just trying to be a little bit more cautious and um just because I have learned the wrong way and the hard way to come out and just say it's definitely this and I have been proven wrong and I will continue to be proven wrong in you know it's not the first time and it won't be the last time the individuals four of them turned out to be adolescents and I think one was an adult 
And yeah. I read that there was clear evidence for childhood malnutrition and heavy manual labor during life. Were you guys able to interpret the burials beyond that? What do you think, what kind of lifestyle do you think that these people led? Well, I suppose we've two sources of information for to, that, that kind of informs this. The first is the actual physical analysis of the bone, which was done by my kind of for my former colleague, Carmelita Troy, down, down there in Rubica. So Carmelita would have looked at the, the, phys, the physical characteristics of the bone. And from those, she would have identified characteristics consistent with manual labor and certain other characteristics that can indicate levels of childhood malnutrition. The other thing that we did was we had the teeth analyzed um, for what we call isotope analysis. So that can, again, give us information about the quality of some uh, of the diet, particularly the childhood diet. And also that the other thing we were able to find out from that was um, your teeth, your teeth, your teeth are laid down when you're a child up to the age of seven kind of like like trees go rings up to the age of seven, you kind of lay down the mineral deposits for your teeth. So from those mineral deposits, they give an idea of the geology of the area that you're living in up to the age of about seven. So that can tell, so from that, you can tell as that gives you information as to where somebody grew up. Now, obviously, if you find them much later in life, it doesn't necessarily tell you where they've been afterwards, but it gives you an idea of whether you're dealing with people who, you know, who are, who have been buried close to where they might have lived as a child or whether they might have come from somewhere else by comparing, I suppose, the geological profile from the isotopes and their teeth to the kind of local geology and other kind of, the kind of known geologies in the same way that we can compare tree ring patterns to, to know, to other, to kind of, to known tree ring patterns, not just to identify date, but also to identify where a tree might have come from because that, that will show up, it, it will fit into the, not just a tree wing sequence from a period, but often from a particular location. So I've had instances, for example, where we've been able to find from tree ring analysis that trees were coming from the United States, rather than for, even though they were found in Dublin. So in this case, we looked at, we looked at the teeth to see what evidence there was for nutrition and the health of the individuals that were buried, and also to see what we could find out about where they might have lived as a child. So from that, obviously, we then got the information. Again, that was also, that isotope analysis was also pointing to poor childhood diet. From both the isotope analysis and the bone, we kind of, the, the, the informed opinion from that was that these were not people who were from the better part of society. These were not people who had had, you know, who, who were well off. These were more likely people who were coming from, a, from, from the poorer end of Dublin society at the time. You know, these these are people who had evidence for for poor childhood, manual labor. These are the kind of things you expect to see in somebody who is very much down at the bottom rungs of society, not not the kind of not not the grand and the good. Um, and the other thing we had was, I think, evidence for people coming from outside of Dublin as well. You know, outside of Dublin, as in Ireland, or as um, in Dublin as abroad, north either north of Ireland or Wales. That was from the juveniles. Our adult was definitely uh, born and raised in Dublin, but the, the juveniles were showing evidence that there was one or two of them that showed evidence to co- that they might have come from kind of somewhere, kind of think it was South Antrim area of Northern Ireland or Wales. And uh, that that that's not that's just down to those 
particular areas having similar geological profiles. So that when you look at is the isotopes, it kind of goes six of one and half a dozen of another. And, and either location could be plausible for somebody in Dublin, because while we think of like Northern Ireland as being nearer because it's in the same country as us now, uh, or at least on the same on the same land mass as us now, um, this, the sea is a much faster transit route in the kind of the medieval and early post-medieval periods than it would be today. So from that point of view, Wales is, is, is as convenient a place to come to Dublin from as kind of South Antrim. Well, Emer, you, you had mentioned that they were potentially deviant burials. I mean, were they buried in a Christian burial or were they were the burials themselves somehow othered? I suppose actually Teresa, I can't remember. They were they were they were we, east, or were they we just have east one. West? We have one that and that's the mid-15th century one that is pretty definitely east-west, head west shall we say, standard operating procedure for Christian-type burials. After that, we have one burial that was slightly flexed, which is a little bit odd, and out of the other four, and the other four were all kind of slightly offline. They're kind of heading, they weren't quite north-south, but they were, head, they were more north-south than they were east-west is the best way of putting it. They were, they were still kind of, you know, you, you, st you still had kind of heads, well, the head, yeah, heads to kind of north, you know, it was very, you know, they were, they were, they were definitely on a very different alignment. The, the four later burials were on a very, so we had four burials of one alignment and one burial another. So they were, there was, there was a common, common alignments, but only one on what we would call a typical um, Christian burial alignment as though you know they were in it as, as you would expect in a more in a conventional shall we say authorized cemetery yeah and I suppose you know. that's that's probably where I started kicking in because I suppose I would be used to burials that would be denied consecrated um, burial and to bury someone on an alignment that's not in keeping with the Christian principles is is a is a sure sign that they were denied proper burial and it would be a sign that they were um, you, you by burying them on a non-traditional alignment you would be trying to stop them from getting into heaven it's one of the tricks that that you the tricks of the trade of of stopping people getting into heaven having the body in a non-traditional position sometimes if they're prone or face down that's another sign that the that the burial would not have been um even if they were christian that they would have done some act in their in their life that would have been kind of made them stood out as not to be accepted by society and society feeling like whoever buried them feeling that they didn't deserve to get into heaven then as i said you know it, it goes on your liminality or your liminal um position so on, on the margin of good land here we had the margins of you know we had the river stein we had the margins of the co the college green we had the, the we were on the edge of the of the monastery and sometimes you know you know outside of the graveyard wall or outside of the monastic wall that's that's a kind of a good way to to kind of let the the world know that these people they weren't part of the christian community or they weren't part of that that medieval um way of life but at the same time you're trying to kind of give them a degree of coverage so that um okay they might still get a bit of sanctity in their burial but just enough so that they won't come back and haunt us so or, or you know it's, it's all about containing spirits and 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 stopping them from walking to seek vengeance so i suppose my mind was just 
from 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 my discipline had just gone in that direction and I'm not saying you know I, I was right it was just another it was just another theory the chances were and the higher chances were that they were going to be Viking and I think we were all surprised no matter what our kind of personal beliefs were we were all very surprised when that was not the case like you know but it was great it was for the city and for the history of the city to find these these new evidence of occupation and new evidence of activity and you know Teresa you've suggested in your reports that they could be like um hasty burials you know we know that there was that they were hanging people in that area but obviously well, there was actually, no evidence no, of this that's, that's, was, the one, that's the one thing we know they weren't doing yeah they weren't in that home. area yeah. was ha- was hanging people because that's that's the one thing we looked in I particularly looked into because I was aware from excavations College Green is one of the medieval greens of Dublin. So these are the commonage areas around Dublin. So the other ones are Oxmanstown Green over on the north side, kind of around the Church Street area there. Um, what's what we now think of Smithfield. That that part of Dublin's the middle of Oxmantown Green, which is another one of these commonage. Stevens Green, obviously, is the is the other, the, the third one that we think of. We think of the three main commonages of Dublin. Now, Smithfield. Over in Smithfield there, when they were doing excavations there, when that was being redeveloped, they found burials. And those burials related to potentially, or at least as far as I know from from the information the excavators put out, is that those burials relate most likely to the carrying out of executions there. Because Oxmanstown Green was where they had one of the gallows of Dublin located. So that was on the north side, and we know people were being executed there. And it's plausible that when people were being executed, obviously <laughs> they were not considered to be good Christian folk, and in some instances might have been buried at the at or close to the place of execution. So that's so we do have that understanding there from the Oxmanstown Green side. We know that pe- people were hung on Stephen's Green as well, right into. I think quite quite late in the in the post medieval period, kind of down. I, I'm not too sure when they stopped uh, on Stephen's Green, but it's quite late. The other gallows is out near Bagot Street. It's often referred to as being on College Green, but when you get down to it, it's actually they're actually referencing a site close to Bagot Street. So it is kind of College Green adjacent. If you went all the way down the back end of Trinity College and you were kind of halfway to Bagot Street, then you would be looking at you would be looking at the site of the gallows there. So there's we couldn't find I couldn't find any very definite evidence to anybody being executed or references to hangings on College Green itself or on Hogan Green. So we've atypical executions on Hogan Green only. So we have in the 14th century, Adam Dove O'Toole. So he, he, he's bur- the burning of a Wicklow man. So I mean, that's, you know, that's, that, that's not normal execution. Um, yeah, for, yeah for, his, for his claim that the Holy Scriptures were nothing but fables, because, you know, that's, that's really, that's not a good thing to be doing in the 14th century anywhere. The most famous one, and I think the one that... Um, Thing, demonstrates that hot, that College Green is not a place that you go to actually kill people when you want to when, when you want to do it publicly, is the execution of Bishop Dermot O'Hurley in 1584, which is about the period we're dealing with. So this is a, this is a really good example. Um, 
and he was executed. He was tortured and executed. Um, he's, he's, he's tortured and executed um, at the hands of Walsingham um, and buried there. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of, he's, yeah, he's accused of plotting to overthrow the Queen's government and he's repeatedly questioned and tortured. And the contemporary, the, this contemporary Elizabethan accounts of his of his of his arrest, his imprisonment, and his execution, and is literally his executioners writing to Dub, to to London, kind of explaining that like we've tortured him, he still won't confess to anything that we can actually try him for, and the agreement is that they will take him out and quietly hang him. And that's you know it's it's it, you know it's 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 almost like a 16th century equivalent of extraordinary rendition. And that's the only way to describe it is because they've essentially established that he was over in the continent kind of fermenting dissent on the continent against the Protestant administration of, of, of London. But he didn't actually do anything within the jurisdiction of the English crown for which the English crown could directly try him. What he did was he did stuff abroad, which wasn't on technically on their turf and nothing he did when he was in Ireland was technically illegal, but they knew that he had been, he, he was a Catholic Bishop. He had contacts with Rome. He was in contacts with um, some of the Anglo-Irish nobility in Ireland who were fomenting dissent against the English crown. And it was basically, they wanted rid of him. So, you know, it's, it's very much who will, rid, who will rid me of this inconvenient man territory. Um, so he is, taken, he, he is famously executed and I think he is considered a martyr in, you know, by the Catholic Church on the basis of his execution on College Green. I think the, 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 there's actual contemporary accounts of people going out to shoot, to, to do archery practice on College Green in the mornings, which is what you would do as, a, as a, you know, now, now we go for a jog down the strand <laughs> in, in Port Marnock or Sandy Mount or somewhere like that in, in, in kind of 16th century Dublin, you would go out in the morning to kind of archery practice on College Green. That was the thing you might do. And I think it was people going out to do that stumbled onto um, him being executed. And that was, you know, that was, you know, so, from that point of view, it just tells you that College Green is not something, it's not somewhere people normally got executed because obviously if you're trying to do something like this under the radar, because you're illegally, you're illegally hanging a bishop, um, that you don't choose to do it somewhere where you normally hang people, because that really make, makes it obvious that you're you're doing something quite dodgy. You you instead try to do it somewhere quiet and off the radar and you know that would suggest that like 16th century college green is not somewhere that executions took place so again that would mitigate against their burials being executed and it's more likely that these as i said you know kind of taking aboard some of Emer's ideas that you know of limit of liminality is that this is this is a kind of liminal location where you could do dodgy things like execute somebody illegally um or in this case, you know, if you had people who were who died and couldn't be buried within uh, the, within a standard Christian cemetery for whatever reason, either because of who they were, or because they were too poor and couldn't afford it, that this might be the kind of liminal location that you could, at a quiet time of day, get rid of a body. 
Fascinating. Because it, yeah, it's it's not the college green that we think of today, which is this bustling kind of main square yeah. almost. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it it was. It was very much, it would be kind of like going up the back of the Phoenix Park now. It would be quiet away from, away from the main hustle and bustle of the city. You know, you would have been, you know, this would have been this kind of quiet corner away from the medieval core. Because at that point, the, this, the city pretty much was still within the medieval walls. There was very little suburban development for another, you know, it's about another 50, 60 years before you start to see the, the, the real kind of ribboning of development down Dame Street towards the college and out towards Stephen's Green. PII is currently nearing completion as far as submitting documents to support uh, really order applications or they're in the early stages of planning for several projects. So we're, we're looking at seeing the Lewis expand. We're also looking at a metro link from Swords and Dublin Airport. Is that correct? Yeah, for, it'll come from, um, we call it Estuary up at Listen Hall in North Dublin, down Swords, down the R132 to the airport, and then over the M50 through Ballymun and down to St. Stephen's Green in Charlemont. So yeah, so then you'll be able to interconnect then with the, the green line at Charlemont. Yeah, so that's taken up an awful lot of my time. It's very intensive. Um, it's a mega project. It's by definition a mega project, and it's 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 a lot of work. Yeah, so it's it's actually very exciting. And you know, even I was going through the reports that we had for Lewis, and you know, I'm starting to get excited to get. Oh, we're going to find this, and we're going to find that, and like even you know, people always keep saying to me, "Oh, sure, look, it's all been dug before." If myself and Teresa here, it's all been dug before. You know, <laughs> it's just like the worst possible thing you could say to an archaeologist, like you know, and and like you know, there's say for example, Tara Station. And um, there's like there was um, a hospital and burials there and you know we know there's the potential that we can still find more and more iron foundries and you know there's always the potential the city will always surprise us and so there's a lot of exciting stuff and and it, it goes from the, kind of the urban industrial stuff right up to the medieval enclosures <laughs> yeah I mean just on that I mean that's the thing that Lewis Cross City really demonstrates is that idea that what was all been dug up before which is what people assume about the streetscape, just doesn't hold up. It, you know, yes, it has been dug up before. Yes, a certain amount of the archaeology has been lost through kind of or through the kind of natural development of the, the civic infrastructure. But the reality is it's nowhere near the level of damage we expect. Certainly the experience from Lewis is that one of the things that the first things they start looking for when they go into building these projects and moving the services is to try and find the places that haven't been dug up before so they can put the new services for these new developments there, which means that essentially the construction ends up targeting exactly the highest areas of potential archaeological survival. Yeah, and like it's 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 shocking, and you'd be surprised at what's found. Like even down Dawson Street, we found fifty meters over fifty meters of wooden pipes from wooden waterways, and like you, you know, it's I always say like archaeologists, you know, oh people shouldn't be allowed to build here. I'm mean, like, well, people built here before, and then people built on top of it again. It is the cycle of life. You're always going to build on the most popular and the most demanded areas because they're the areas that work for people. Like you know, so so yeah, we are just going to find and like so much stuff and like Lewis has given us insight and, and access to places like St. Patrick's well 
beneath Nassau Street, things people would never see there since the fifth century. And like it's it's just such an opportunity and a privilege to work on this city and to know that, yeah, despite what they say, we're still going to find some more stuff. And, and I'll be there saying, I told you so. I told you so, like, you know, so um, and I'm lucky and privileged to have people like Teresa and Rubicon supporting me and enabling me to do the job and and, ver- you know, and confirm that, yeah, you still need archaeologists on the Lewis. I'm sure all archaeologists are excited for more work on the Lewis. I've talked to people who have dug it and they say it's one of the highlights of their careers. It's a tough job. It is a tough job and you make yeah. fast decisions, but they prove their worth. Everyone that worked on that project prove their worth. Yeah, I just like to reiterate that. I mean, I had a, it's the case, I know I'm talking here, so kind of I took everything, but I took very little of this. <laughs> I, I took none I, of I, it. I mostly like a, a kind of demented orchestra conductor trying to kind of keep, keep everything coordinated in the show on the road. I, I mean, I, you know, and much like the orchestra conductor, it's, it's, it's the individual people playing the instruments, the individual archaeologists working on the project through both phases, when we were, whether it was the utilities contract or the main infrastructure construction contract. You know, it's the archaeologists who worked for me on the yeah. projects, working for Rubicon. It was a fantastic team of people. And their ability to like find these scraps of material and put it all together and put it into a history of the development of the city in the way and the cohesive manner that has happened. It's a pure credit to them and they do deserve a good acknowledgement. Where can we learn more about these results outside of the podcast? Are the reports available? Can we see anything in the museum? Yeah, well, um, not in the museum at the minute, and it'll be up to the discretion of the museum if anything does go on display. But what we do have is Rubicon have their webpage. There is what we call the Digital Repository of Ireland, where Transport Infrastructure Ireland puts all its reports up on that location. There is also some reports available on the Transport Infrastructure Ireland webpage. There was a book called Above and Below, where we did a chapter on the initial findings, and then there will eventually be a book. And another thing that actually happened was there's a story map that the Irish Times did, and that would bring you up and, and show other finds around the city. And hopefully we can collaborate and do a bit more um, with Rubicon and more podcasts and more blogs. Yeah, because there's so much more we haven't even touched on. Emer, Teresa, thank you so much for coming on today. It was a pleasure to chat with you. 